Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. It's a skincare product that is governed by the Therapeutics Good Association, works almost immediately and continues to keep your skin healthy, safe and youthful for years to come. But for one head-scratching reason or another, most Australians don't wear it all year long. What do you think it is? Yep, it is sunscreen we're talking about. Most of us know the importance of wearing sunscreen in the summer months to avoid sunburn and damage, but it really should be a year-round preventative health measure. Ultraviolet rays are one of the leading causes of sun damage and skin cancer in Australia. Welcome to episode number 26 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I am speaking with Rachel McAdam, Scientific Communications Manager of La Roche-Posay. Rachel is a practicing pharmacist. She keeps up one day a week in the community pharmacy, as well as communications across the board for La Roche-Posay, and she specializes in the field of dermatology and skincare formulations. Her areas of interest include UV protection, acne, and cosmetic dermatology. Today, Rachel shares the complexity in formulating sunscreens and the importance of protecting your skin every single day. We debunk myths, talk about our ancestors and sunscreen, and I started asking Rachel what she thought was the biggest misconception about sunscreen. Some of the biggest misconceptions lie around application of a sunscreen. So what we know is that you do need a significant amount of sunscreen to be protected as it's labelled. And an example is you need two and a half mils for the face and neck, which is equivalent to about half a teaspoon. Another misconception is to do with the time a sunscreen lasts. So sunscreens will integrate into the skin, but after time that starts to decline because the skin's natural turnover, because of sweating, Just natural things take place, which means one application isn't enough if you're out in the sun for more than two hours, for example. Another one that we hear a lot about is to do with the SPF. So some thoughts are that SPF 50 isn't much more efficient than an SPF 30 when it actually is more significant to have an SPF 50. And it's to do more with the time it takes to burn, but also to do with the UVA if it's a broad spectrum. And also another misconception is that a sunscreen needs to be thick to be effective, which is no longer true. We're seeing Mm. much more sophisticated technology nowadays as well. So that would probably be the ones that come to mind. Yes, and I can concur. These are things that I see all the time. And especially in regards to the last point, thinking that we need to have this thick zinc Mm type sunscreen Mm. that we used to see in the 80s and 90s which luckily we don't have to put up with anymore absolutely yes so can you break down some sunscreen for our listeners so perhaps the difference between chemical and physical sunscreen what actually is spf Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of 
I guess, unsurety about that as well. Yeah, sure thing. So sunscreens are essentially formulations that contain some kind of UV filter or blocker. So there are two varieties. There's a chemical filter or another name is an organic filter. And there are physical filters, which are inorganic filters. And the, the big difference is that a chemical filter, you can get so many different types. They can be, you know, UVA bound or they can be UVB. And these sit on the skin and they take the UV energy and they stop it from penetrating into the skin and doing its damage pretty much by deactivating it. And then the physical filters, which are really only either titanium dioxide or zinc oxide, these work by reflecting the UV rays away from the skin. So they both stop the UV ray from penetrating, but they both work quite differently and they both have different capacities at, you know, taking on that UV radiation at different wavelengths. Um, now back into the SPF question. So SPF stands for sun protection factor. And this is essentially a measure of the sunscreen's ability to stop burning. So it's how long it takes for the skin to burn with that sunscreen versus without a sunscreen. So for example, if something is an SPF 50, it means it takes 50 times longer to reach redness of the skin compared to no sunscreen at all. And if it's SPF 30, it means it takes 30 times longer to burn versus no sunscreen. And so that's what's being used to give that efficiency measure of a sunscreen. But there's a little bit more that goes into it as well at a laboratory level as to how that's measured. And in Australia, the good thing is that sunscreens are actually regulated by the government. So what we want is to make sure that a sunscreen does what it says it's going to do. So under government regulations, if, if a sunscreen is broad spectrum SPF 50 plus, that means it must have been tested and it must prove that it is actually SPF 50 plus. And also if it's listed as broad spectrum, it means it needs to also meet a certain UVA protection factor because I didn't mention earlier that SPF is actually just the burning which is caused by the UVB ray, the UVA. And there's so many other things. So the government also requires that the sunscreen meet a certain stability. So that means that they won't just completely deactivate once they're radiated by the sun and also that they meet a certain wavelength as well criteria. So there's, we're really lucky that we've got this regulation in place for sunscreens in Australia. How interesting. And even just that it has to have certification for certain wavelengths, as we That's know that right. UVA, UVB are different wavelengths. That's exactly right. So we, yeah, we, we could go into that one as well, but we know that each of them has a role to play in the type of damage and, you know, yeah, the damage it does to the skin. Yeah. And in terms of the SPF factor, so you mentioned it's about the time it takes for someone to burn. So yes. this would really also come back to that person's skin color, right? And that person's ability to, or disability to kind of protect itself. So someone that is fairer mm -hmm. compared to someone that has more of an olive complexion that is going to naturally take longer to exactly. burn, the sunscreen will be different compared on yes. those two sunscreens as well. That's a really good point, actually. And in the laboratory testing of an SPF, it's standardized, which means it must also have different Fitzpatrick skin types. So it must have, you know, a variety of skin types to get that average time it takes to burn so that no matter which sunscreen undergoes the test, it's always done by a standard laboratory test. Ah, <laughs> interesting. Because I know for someone that might be a Fitzpatrick one, so someone very fair, perhaps yes. red hair, blue eyes, if it's a very high UV, they could be burnt in a matter of minutes. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. 
So sunscreens cop a lot of publicity, good and bad. Mm. And there's been some recent reports and lots in the media about nanoparticles in sunscreens actually found in blood plasma. Mm. Are you able to provide some commentary on these subjects? And I guess I can give a little bit of insight into where this has all come from. So as we mentioned before, there are physical filters so they're titanium and zinc essentially and these can be quite large or they can be very small when they're formulated so when they reach a size we're talking tiny tiny so less than 100 nanometers these are called nanoparticles and of course you can't necessarily measure them with the eye so that's small and some experiments have shown that when the particles are extremely small there is concern that they can penetrate into the system and then on the other hand there are some studies that have shown that there's absolutely no concern with nanoparticles so what we know is that the TGA the government has done a review of all these studies so they've taken all of them on board and they've assessed them and they've come back with the position that there is no concern with nanoparticles so and that's why they're still utilized in sunscreens wherever you see titanium or zinc you, you know you do know that depending on their size then they could also be nanoparticles in that formula interesting and the reason why they're nanoparticles i guess this means that the sunscreen is going to apply a lot nicer correct and you're not going to have that ghost white appearance that is 100 percent true so the smaller they are um, it actually also changes their ability to absorb uv light as well so the smaller they are i think the biggest benefit that we know is that they're going to be more cosmetically appealing for the skin you know a while ago we're talking years ago yes sunscreens did make us look very white and they weren't desirable to wear which defeats the purpose of a sunscreen we want to make sure that we wear them every day because we Mm. know that there's uv around whether it's a cloudy day or a winter's day there's still uv around so we want to make sure that we wear our sunscreens every day and yeah if the skin is healthy and unbroken that's the government's position on nanoparticles at the moment sure so when it's smaller how does this impact the uv does it mean that there's more surface area so that it's actually more protective or does it need to be applied thicker so it provides a better protection that's a really good question what we know is as they become more fine you might start to need a little bit of a higher concentration potentially, but it all really depends on what we're dealing with. Are we dealing with zinc? Are we dealing with titanium? Mm. Are there other filters in the formulation? It actually gets quite complex. So that's pretty much all I can comment on it with that question. But yeah, it does get quite complex in formulating a sunscreen and ensuring that it captures the best spectrum that it could with UV. So we are going to dive into some of the formulation process of sunscreen, but I'd really like to hear about perhaps non-governed type sunscreens. What are the risks of homemade sunscreen? Yes, so homemade sunscreens, they are quite popular because, you know, they're perceived as natural, having minimal ingredients. But the risk with homemade sunscreens is that we don't really know if the active, you know, UV protectants used are efficacious so if they work if they protect you know in the right wavelengths if they have enough capacity so we're seeing potential you know very low spf if we were to throw a number out there like in the twos threes fours and if they do incorporate a known filter such as zinc oxide we don't even know whether that's going to do what we think it's going to do so it's not regulated or tested to show that it's going to meet a really I hope, a good SPF for Australia's harsh UV rays. Yeah, I can see why that's such a problem. I mean, if you're going out and buying a homemade 
moisturizer or body oil, that's completely different. But when it comes to sunscreen, the whole idea of it is to protect our skin. And if we can't actually test and know at what kind of point that it is protecting us, then it completely defeats the purpose of applying it. Very much agree. So what goes into the formulation process of sunscreen? It's actually more complex than many people think. And we know that it starts in so many ways. So first of all, the active filters that are included in a sunscreen, they need to be absorbed UV light across the wavelengths of UVA, UVB, and even within those, the lower and the upper sides of that Mm. because they all do damage in different ways. They also need to be included in the right concentrations. And then we need to make sure we can get them into a formula. So some are oil-soluble, some are water-soluble, some might need alcohol to dissolve. So we need to be able to capture them in a formula, distribute them evenly. So that's also a bit of a challenge. Mm. Some filters even need to be coated so that they do sit in a formula effectively. Mm. Um, Yeah, another thing is that these all need to be stabilized as well. So when the UV ray hits the formula on the skin, we need to make sure that they're stable enough not to then lose their or degrade, lose their capacity to carry on and still take on UV over time. Mm. Uh, Another thing that probably many people don't know goes into a sunscreen is that it's quite hard to make it cosmetically appealing as well and still very, very high efficacy in absorbing UVA and UVB. So There is a little bit of sophistication in making sure that it's light, it doesn't feel greasy, that it has a nice touch and that it's wearable really. Yeah, how interesting. There's so much that goes into it. Is there evidence, Rachel, of our ancestors using forms of sunscreen or sun protection? Well, it's really not until the 80s that we started to see these you know, more sophisticated formulations occurring. So it's actually only in recent times. But we do know that, uh, you know, in ancient times, and I think the ancient Egyptians are the ones that are known to have used natural elements to provide UV protection and things like rice bran, things like jasmine were included. So they may have had very slight UV absorbing or protecting capacity. They're not, you know, filters that we now use. So definitely throughout the time, I think mankind has known that the sun is damaging, it's going to burn. They may have not known about its ageing or its skin cancer-inducing capacity, but we have seen ancient people use natural remedies or natural protectants. How interesting. And I know Egyptians are known for their other body type rituals for beautifying the skin. Yes, that's so true. So it is interesting that there's also been evidence to show that they have also tried to protect their skin in some way from the sun's damaging rays. And looking into the future... What do you think we'll see in the future of sunscreen? You know, I can really just speak from the trend that we're seeing now. We're seeing, uh, well, I feel that sunscreens will become even more sophisticated. So they're going to become even better at protecting against the UV. They're going to become even more stable. They're going to become even lighter to where we're already seeing actually formulations now. Really, really impressed that they're very effective and yet almost invisible to wear. So that's probably only going to get better and better. I think also sunscreens will be more conscious of the environment. So the filters that are chosen are going to be even safer. So, yeah, I think that's the direction they're going to continue to go in at the moment. And when someone may be looking for a sunscreen, what would be some key points? 
Yeah, sure. So sunscreens all have labeling, um, you know, directions. So definitely yeah. use as directed, follow the label. Yeah. In general, sunscreens need to be applied around 20 minutes before exposure. That just allows them to integrate into the stratum corneum, which is the top layer of skin, just so that they actually settle before that skin is radiated. Mm. I also think good advice is to make sure you choose protection for yourself. So a broad spectrum is so important and SPF 50 plus. We know that UVA penetrates glass and it penetrates clouds. So even if you're just sitting in an office by a window, mm. you could be exposed. So another piece of advice would be to wear sunscreen every day if you can. And if it is light enough to wear, that should hopefully be something that people can incorporate into their daily routine. Um, and as we mentioned at the beginning, to apply enough. So to make sure you use that, you know, that volume that you need for your body or the exposed parts. Another thing would be you're exposed to the sun, add on some hats and protective clothing, sunglasses, because, yeah, we're still seeing a lot of skin cancer in Australia. So that will, you know, hopefully start to decline. Yeah. And, yeah, I think another thing that people don't realise is although sunscreens, if they're a sophisticated formula, are designed to withstand, you know, some temperature changes, it's important not to just leave your sunscreen in a very hot car for too long because, again, we don't know. It's not guaranteed to hold its capacity if, if the conditions have changed for it. And it, I think on the pack often it will say store below 25 degrees. Mm. So just to look after your sunscreen and to respect respect its label. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And just in my practice when I've been doing skin checks on particular like tradies and mm. as I'm using sunscreens and they say, yeah, every day. And I say, where do you store your sunscreen? Oh, in, you know, <laughs> in the console of the in car. The and I say, yeah. no. From this day forward, you are storing your sunscreen in your esky or in your lunch bag because uh -huh, it's going to be cooler there. Because yeah. I don't think people think about how hot a car can get in the middle of summer. And this is obviously going to start to grade that sunscreen and make it less efficacy. Yes, it could break as well, which means it's not distributed evenly in the formula anymore. So many different things could happen. So you're absolutely right to have given that advice yeah Rachel I just love to actually hear a tip and I'd love to hear if someone's wearing makeup how do they apply reapply sunscreen on their face without having to redo all of their makeup yes. do you have tips that uh, you use personally <laughs> oh, this is a really good question we get this question a lot and there's really no black and white answer but I'll give you a few tips on the whole makeup application scenario yeah so I guess as a rule we always say to apply your active formulations from thinnest to thickest so if your sunscreen is quite light and say it's a you know, a chemical filter formulation, which tends to be quite light, you apply that first and then you apply on any thicker moisturizers or makeup on top. Mm -hmm. Now, if your makeup is needing to be there throughout the day and you really don't have time to go take it off and then reapply, there's sunscreens that actually come in different formats. You can get compact sunscreens. They are out there and they, they often are getting more sophisticated as well as long as they're broad spectrum, maybe 30 or 50 plus. Mm. You can actually just pop that on on top so you're constantly getting that layer of you know, UV protection on top of your existing makeup. Mm. That's one way to do it. And I always say to consumers or to the team that anything is better than nothing. So never not do it. Just do something really and yeah. even tailor your sunscreen. So you might have three different types of sunscreens in your cabinet for different you know, scenarios. Yes. Yeah. That's good advice. And I know I've got one, different ones for body, different ones yeah. for face, uh, just depending what you're doing on that particular day. No, that's great. Great to hear. Well, so much good advice and debunking of sunscreens. Thank you so much for being a guest on today's show, Rachel. It was a pleasure no, to have you. Absolutely pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
short and sweet, Rachel shared with us the formulation process of sunscreen and provided some really interesting and concise background information on the myths of sunscreen. The three deeper-than-skin insights that stood out to me were, number one, did you have any idea what in, went into the formulation process of sunscreen? I know I've walked through so many markets and different little stalls uh, promoting these natural sunscreens. And while I appreciate and applaud their efforts, I think I'm going to stick to something that is governed by the TGA. Um, which brings us to the next point. Number two. Ever notice that sunscreens don't have as much marketing around them? Um, there's not so many advertisements. And this is because they're actually governed by the TGA, the Therapeutics Good Association. So therefore, there are certain rules and regulations when it comes to marketing sunscreens because they're really seen as a medication or a therapeutic uh, type product. And number three, this is more a reminder than an insight. But are you wearing enough? Are you reapplying and are you storing your sunscreen in a cool place? I'd love to hear what your deeper than skin insights were. So screenshot your phone while you're listening to the podcast and let me know your three insights by tagging at dermhealthco on Instagram. And if you've got a future topic or guest that you'd like to hear on the show, then let us know by connecting with us either on social media or emailing us podcast at dermhealth.co. If you know someone experiencing a skin conditional concern and you're enjoying these episodes, then be sure to share the podcast with them. It may help them on their skin health journey more than you realize.